0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is this is a special episode. This is an episode literally years in the making. This is an excerpt from my audiobook, book, um, from the book, uh, Why We're Polarized, which is coming out January 28th. But this is the first time anybody will hear or read or see the book in public. So I'm very excited to share it with you here on the podcast, which felt right to me because here on the podcast is where I've worked out and worked through and argued over so many of the ideas. So the excerpt that I wanted to put here is from one of the early chapters, uh, and it is about identity. It is about how identity functions in the human brain, how it separates us from each other, what it takes to trigger Feelings and senses and ideas of identity and what happens once they are triggered. It is a foundational brick of the book, trying to understand that. I think it's important when you're building an idea of politics to build it out of a consistent and rigorous idea of how humans actually function. And this is one of my attempts to do it. But the other reason I wanted it here is it is central also to some of the stories and ideas we've been dealing with on this podcast. I think people have heard me for a long time fighting the very narrow Cramped way we think about identity politics and identity, arguing that there's something much bigger here that we've blinded ourselves to. This is the much bigger thing. This does not tell you everything the book does with these ideas, but I think it'll give you an idea of it. And I think it'll also make a lot of things happening on this podcast make more sense. So you can go listen to the audiobook, get it on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks. You can pre order the book or depending on when you listen, buy it wherever you get your books. But here, I hope you enjoy this first excerpt from Why We're Polarized. Your brain on groups. In 1970, Henry Tajfel published a paper with the anodyne title, Experiments in Intergroup Discrimination. Rolls off the tongue. It would prove among the most important studies ever in social psychology, and even today, it stands as one of the most unnerving windows into the subroutines of the human mind. Tajfeld began by recalling a Slovene friend of his detailing the stereotypes his countrymen had for Bosnian immigrants. Touchville doesn't record what the stereotypes were, but they stuck with him. He thought he had heard them or something like them before. He decided to test that hunch. Quote, Some time later, I presented this description to a group of students at the University of Oxford and asked them to guess by whom it was used and to whom it referred. The almost unanimous reply was that this was a characterization applied by native Englishmen to colored immigrants people coming primarily from the West Indies, India, and Pakistan, end quote. From this, Tajville took a lesson. Discrimination varies in its targets and intensities across cultures, but it is surprisingly similar in its rationalizations. Perhaps he thought the way we treat people we decide aren't like us isn't a product of our specific culture or experience, but something deeper, something that reflects how humans think, organize, and bound their social worlds. Tajville wrote, the most important principle of subjective social order we construct for ourselves is a classification of groups as we and they, end quote. And once someone has become a they, we're used to dismissing them, competing against them, discriminating against them. And Tajvel went on to hypothesize in a particularly chilling sentence, we will do that, quote, even if there is no reason for it in terms of our own interests, end quote. It's worth dwelling on the radical conception of human nature Tajfel is advancing. People long nurture their prejudices, but they believe those prejudices reflected reality. We disliked those we disliked because we had reason to dislike them. This is the whole point of racial and ethnic stereotypes: the greed, criminality, venality, or idiocy we ascribe to others justifies our hatred or fear of them. The post-Enlightenment view of humanity is that we are rational individuals whose actions may be inflamed by instinct, but are ultimately governed by calculation. But what if it was the other way around? What if our loyalties and prejudices are governed by instinct and merely rationalized as calculation? There's a reason Tashvall had these doubts. His life had taught him a cruel lesson in how thin the film of human civilization really was, how near to the surface our barbarism lurked and how flimsy yet central group identity could be, how quickly it could shift from being meaningless to being the only thing that mattered. Toshfell was a Polish Jew born in 1919. He immigrated to France in the 1930s because Jews couldn't get a university education in Poland. With World War II ripping through Europe, he joined the French army in 1939 and was captured by the Germans in 1940. He spent the next five years in German prisoner of war camps. His student and collaborator, John Turner, wrote, All through this period, he lived under the false identity of being French. Had it been discovered by the German authorities that he was a Polish rather than a French Jew, he would have been killed. This became, Turner later recalled, the base layer of Tajfel's fixation on group identity. Quote, The point he made was that no matter what his personal characteristics were, or the quality of his personal relationships with the German guards, Once his true identity had been discovered, it was that social category membership of being Polish which would have determined the reaction of the guards and his ultimate fate. His personal attributes and identity as a unique individual would have proved unimportant and irrelevant to their response. Toshval returned to France in May 1945. He said, Hardly anyone I knew in 1939, including my family, was left alive. And why had his parents been murdered? why was his brother killed? The answer for them was the same as the answer for six million other Jews. They were Jewish. It is not hard to understand why a man who endured this era, who survived only by slipping into an identity that was not even his own, would find himself obsessing over the psychology and substance of group identity. Toshville theorized that the instinct to view our own with favor and outsiders with hostility is so deeply learned that it operates independent of any reason to treat social relations as a competition. We do not need to hate or fear members of an outgroup to turn on them. We do not need to have anything material to gain by turning on them at all. Once we have classified them as, well, them, that's enough. We will find ourselves inclined to treat them skeptically, even hostilely, because that is what we are used to doing with anyone we see as a them. It's an automatic response, like the goose flesh that rises on your arm in reaction to the cold. As a theory, it was elegant, if a bit grim, but it raised two predictions Tajville realized he could test experimentally. The first was that we were so tuned to sort the world into us and them, we would do so based on the lightest of cues. The second is that once we had sorted the world into us and them, we would act with favor toward our group and discriminate against the outgroup, even in the absence of any reason to do so. Atop this theory, Tajville conducted a series of famous experiments that would be farcical were the results not so chilling. In the first, 64 boys between the ages of 14 and 15 were invited to Tajville's laboratory. The children all came from the same school, so they came into the experiment knowing one another, already belonging to a community together. In the study's first portion, the boys were told the researchers wanted to test visual judgment. They were shown clusters of dots and asked to estimate how many they saw. They then sat and watched as the researchers busily pretended to score their work. Then, the researchers said they wanted to take advantage of the boys' presence there to run another test, one that was in no way related to the first. To make life simpler, they were going to sort the boys into groups based on whether they'd guess high or low when judging dots in the other study. In reality, this was total fiction. The boys were split completely at random. The new task consisted of handing out a limited amount of real money to other boys in the study. The boys were never giving themselves money, they were just allocating it to others. But they could see whether they were giving it to members of their group or the other group. Let's pause here to emphasize the absurdity of the situation. 64 boys, all from the same school, were brought into a lab and sorted into groups based on a meaningless characteristic how accurately they estimated dots on a screen. And even that wasn't true. Then they were moved into a different study, one that had nothing to do with dots at all, where they were giving away money, none of which they would ever get. It was the lightest test of group identity possible. It was so light that Toshville did not expect it to generate group behavior. Turner said later, his idea was to establish a baseline of no intergroup behavior. And then to add variables cumulatively to see at what point intergroup discrimination occurred. In other words, this first experiment with this silly categorization it was meant to be below the bar at which collective identity took hold. So Tajfel could then add stronger cues and pinpoint what it took to make people see themselves as part of a group. Here, even Tajfel, despite his tragic past, was underestimating the power of group psychology. The results of this first test showed group identity taking hold and mutating into bias. Quote, A large majority of the subjects, in all groups in both conditions, gave more money to members of their own group than to members of the other group. End quote. Importantly, this wasn't the best strategy for getting the most money out of the experimenters, and it was not the strategy the boys chose when they weren't thinking in groups. When told they were choosing between two members of their own group, they tended to choose the fairest option. But when it was between a member of their meaningless group and the other meaningless group, they opted to make sure their co-over or co underestimator whose name they didn't even know, got more, even if it meant everyone got less in total. The results were so striking, that Toshville decided he needed to do a second study to make sure they held. Once again, he invited a bunch of boys into the lab. This time, the boys were shown paintings by Paul Klee and Wassily Kandinsky and asked to choose their favorite. The paintings were shown without signatures, so the boys could then be sorted at random into the Klee group or the Kandinsky group, as the researchers moved on to the next experiment. Once again, the boys were asked to hand out money, knowing nothing other than that they were often allocating between participants who agreed with their taste in art and participants who didn't. And in reality, even that thin reed of group identity was false. But this time, the setup was designed to test whether making money for their group or screwing over the outsiders was more important for the assembled kids. In some scenarios, the boys would have to choose between maximizing the amount of money everyone received and maximizing how much more their group got, even if it meant their group got less in total. The latter proved the more popular option. Reflect on that for a second. They preferred to give their group less so long as it meant the gap between what their group got and what the outgroup got was bigger. Some of the boys did not choose between an outgroup and an in-group member at all. Instead, they were asked to choose between two members of their group or between two members of the outgroup. In those cases, there was no longer group competition to drive behavior. But here too, the results were telling. The boys giving money to two members of their group gave more than when they were giving money to two members of the outgroup. Even now Tauchevel's description of the boys' decision to punish out group members, even when there was no in-group member to give money to. It rings with astonishment. There is no scarcity driving their decisions. That they still chose to punish the outgroup, he wrote, represented, therefore, a clear case of gratuitous discrimination. In a 1971 paper reflecting on these results, Toshville and his co authors wrote that it was time to put to rest the idea that group conflict was primarily motivated by zero sum collisions over resources or power. Quote, Discriminatory intergroup behavior cannot be fully understood if it is considered solely in terms of objective conflict of interests. End quote. The boys in his studies often had nothing to gain and sometimes even had something to lose by punishing those they believed, based on flimsy and false categorizations, to be different from them. Far from their behavior showing a pure desire to maximize their group's gains, they often gave their group less to increase the difference between them and their outgroup. Far from the money being the prime motivator, it is the winning that seems more important to them, wrote Tajfel. Again, these results were looking at boys who knew one another, who had no prior attachment to the meaningless groups they were randomly sorted into, who were allocating money that they knew they themselves would never get. But before you comfort yourself by saying that this is just a few experiments with some random teenage boys, that no adult would act this way. It's worth looking at one sphere of human life in which his behavior plays out constantly around us. I should say, to be honest, Tajfel's results have been replicated repeatedly in all sorts of conditions, deploying all sorts of group identities, and using adults as subjects. But permit me the grace of a smooth section transition. To hate like this is to be happy forever. It's time for me to admit something that I know will cost me the respect of some of you. I'm not a sports fan. More than that, I don't understand sports fandom. I've tried. I've adopted teams, gone to games. When I was a kid, I obsessively collected baseball cards, rattling off the stats of favored players. But I've never been able to develop allegiance. I grew up near Los Angeles after the Rams had absconded to St. Louis. The team has since returned, which I would say further proves the point I'm making here. So I knew these organizations had no loyalty to me. I liked following drafts and trades, and I saw that the players went where the money was rather than staying where their fans were. But look, I'm weird and broken, clearly. Sports are ubiquitous, and they're ubiquitous because they respond to human beings' deep desire to sort us from them, to see our group triumph over outsiders in combat and competition. Whether our team wins has no effect on our incomes, our futures, our children's education, or whether our job will move to China. But every week, millions, perhaps even billions, attach their happiness to the outcome of a game that they are not playing, whose material spoils they will not enjoy. They are not just watching for sportsmanship or prowess. They are watching, as Tajville said, because it is a winning that is important. The winning is so important that cities burn and people die in its aftermath. In 2015, 538's Carl Bialik collected information on 49 recent North American sports riots. Quote, the database tells a violent history of the aftermath of many sporting events. Thousands of people arrested, hundreds injured, more than a dozen killed. The riots occurred in more than a dozen U.S. states and three Canadian provinces in reaction to sporting events in all four major North American pro sports, plus college football, basketball, and hockey. End quote. Again, this is all for contests in which the stakes are purely psychological and emotional, and yet the ecstasy of victory and sometimes the pain of loss so overwhelms our faculties that we destroy the very towns that form the basis of our affection for the teams we're supporting. This is how powerfully we attach to groups. This is how little it takes for group identity to take over all our other faculties, for identitarian passions to push aside the tinny voice of our reasoning mind. In 2006, Will Blythe published a book with the title I have never forgotten. It was called, To Hate Like This Is To Be Happy Forever. How can you walk by a book with those words slashed across the cover? What could that be about? When I picked it up, I was surprised to see that it was an exploration of the rivalry between the Duke and University of North Carolina basketball teams, and the way that rivalry had given shape and meaning to the author's life in moments when little else did. Blythe writes, the living and dying through one's allegiance to either Duke or Carolina is no less real for being enacted through play and fandom. I love that line, the living and dying through one's allegiance. If it sounds like hyperbole, consider the possibility that the emotional experience it describes is not just real but rational. Human beings evolved to exist in groups, to be part of a group, and to see that group thrive meant survival. To be exiled from a group or to see a group crushed by its enemies, that could mean death. Is it really so strange that we evolve to feel the life and death stakes of group belonging and status? The emergent science of loneliness offers a powerful insight here. We tend to dismiss the agony of social isolation or stigma as merely psychological, but it isn't. To feel abandoned by community, to fear the opprobrium of others, triggers a physical assault on the body. You may have heard statistics like loneliness is worse for you than obesity or smoking. Medical professionals, like the former Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, say that social isolation acts like a disease or an injury crossing from psychological state to physical malady. The mechanism is evolutionary. Our brains know we need our groups to survive. So when we feel cast out of our group, it triggers a massive stress response throughout the body. Vivek Murthy writes, From a biological perspective, we evolved to be social creatures. Long ago, our ability to build relationships of trust and cooperation helped increase our chances of having a stable food supply and more consistent protection from predators. Over thousands of years, the value of social connection has become baked into our nervous system, such that the absence of such a protective force creates a stress state in the body. Loneliness causes stress, and long-term or chronic stress, it leads to more frequent elevations of a key stress hormone, cortisol. It is also linked to higher levels of inflammation in the body. This, in turn, damages blood vessels and other tissues, increasing the risk of heart disease, diabetes, joint disease, depression, obesity, and premature death. Chronic stress can also hijack your brain's prefrontal cortex, which governs decision-making, planning, emotional regulation, analysis, and abstract thinking. There is a particular finding in this research that's almost unbearably poignant. As Johann Hari describes in his book Lost Connections, anywhere in the world where people describe being lonely, they will also, throughout their sleep, experience more of something called micro-awakenings. These are small moments you won't recall when you wake up, but in which you rise a little from your slumber. All other social animals do the same thing when they're isolated too. The best theory is that you don't feel safe going to sleep when you're lonely because early humans literally weren't safe if they were sleeping apart from the tribe. That is how deep the experience of social anxiety runs. It literally wakes you up throughout the night because your body knows it can't rest as deeply when it can't rely on others for protection. Our brains reflect deep evolutionary time, while our lives, for better and for worse, are lived right now, in this moment. We are exquisitely tuned to understand and manage our role in the small, necessary groups that defined our world as hunter-gatherers, but we've not had long to adjust to the digitized, globalized, accelerated world we've built. The sensitivities that helped us thrive within the interplay of a few groups of a few hundred people can drive us mad when exposed to the scale, noise, and sophisticated manipulations of modern capitalism and politics. Our brains don't always know the difference between the life and death stakes that group fortunes once held and the milder consequences they typically carry today. In his book, Enlightenment 2.0, Restoring Sanity to Our Politics, Our Economy, and Our Lives, University of Toronto philosopher Joseph Heath frames this nicely. He writes, When it comes to large-scale cooperation, we humans have clearly exceeded our programming. We've become what biologists call an ultra-social species, despite having a set of social instincts that are essentially tailored for managing life in a small-scale tribal society. It's crucial to recognize, however, that we've not accomplished this by reprogramming ourselves or overcoming our innate design limitations. We've accomplished this in large measure by tricking ourselves into feeling as though we are still living in small-scale tribal societies, even when we are not. Unfortunately, the trick works so well but we sometimes forget that we're using it. And so imagine that we can create large-scale systems of cooperation based on nothing more than our rational insight into the need for such institutions. This invariably leads to disappointment. End quote. I'd amend that a little. It doesn't invariably lead to disappointment. Sometimes it does lead to large-scale, wonderful advances in human cooperation, like the nation-state or religions. But sometimes it leads to hatred, violence, even genocide. And sometimes it just leads to everyone gathering on Sunday to watch two groups of people dressed in particular colors collide with each other on a lush green field. I worry, writing this section, that some will read it and believe I'm dismissing the power or condescending to the experience of sports rivalries. So let me say this clearly. My point is the opposite. Sports are such a powerful force in human society precisely because they harness primal instincts that pulse through our psyche. The fact that teams can command such deep, violent loyalty based on nothing but being in the same town as fans, even as professional sports teams are transparently cynical in their loyalties, even as he demands stadium subsidies to locate and tax breaks to remain in the towns they profess to love, even as the players leave the moment another team offers a better deal. All that shows that we are no different from Toshfell's boys. A group does not have to be based on objectively important criteria for it to become an important part of our self-identity and for it to inspire loathing of those who stand outside its boundaries. Another objection to this argument might be that sports are, well, sports. They are competition distilled to its purest form. They construct a world where for one side to win, the other must lose. It's unfair to compare that with politics, isn't it? Politics is a team sport. In 2015, Patrick R. Miller and Pamela Johnston Conover published a paper entitled Red and Blue States of Mind. The paper looks at how Republicans and Democrats, as well as independents who lean towards one party or the other, act during elections. What motivates them? What do they feel? What drives them to participate? Quote, the behavior of partisans resembles that of sports team members acting to preserve the status of their teams rather than thoughtful citizens participating in the political process for the broader good, the paper concludes. Yikes. The authors tested behavior in two stages. In the first, they looked at partisan action through the prism of feelings of anger toward and rivalry with the other party. Using mountains of survey data and pre- and post-election polling of the same groups, They tested the effect issue positions, ideology, age, education, political knowledge, church attendance, gender, partisan identity, race, and more had on a person's likelihood of feeling fury and competition in the midst of an election. They found that while high-minded factors like policy ideas and ideology played some role in how partisans felt, the overwhelming driver was the strength of partisan identity. Quote, Elections accentuate the team mentality of party identifiers, pushing them repeatedly to make us-them comparisons between Democrats and Republicans that draw attention to what will be lost, status, if the election is not won. This results in both rivalry and anger. End quote. The next question Miller and Conover considered was whether those feelings led to actions. So they ran a similar test looking at how the same host of political forces, identities, and ideas Drove a Republican or Democrat's likelihood of helping on a campaign or actually turning out to vote. Here, again, partisan identity dominated when compared to abstractions like issue positions or ideology. But then Miller and Conover did something interesting. They asked people to reflect on how much anger, rivalry, and incivility they felt toward the other side. Once they added those answers into their data, the effect of every other political factor plummeted. How we feel matters much more than what we think. And in elections, the feelings that matter most are often our feelings about the other side. That's negative partisanship rearing its head again. The big picture that emerges from this paper is that the people actually driving elections, the people knocking on doors, working for campaigns, and turning out to vote, are driven more by group rivalry than by tax policy. Miller and Conover are crisp on this point. Quote, When partisans endure meetings, plant yard signs, write checks, and spend endless hours volunteering... What is likely foremost in their minds is that they are furious with the opposing party and want intensely to avoid losing to it, not a specific issue agenda. They are fired up team members on a mission to defeat the other team. End quote. A 2016 Pew survey backed up these findings and their centrality to politics. Among Republicans, moving from a mostly unfavorable view of the Democratic Party to a very unfavorable view increased the likelihood of regular voting by 12 points. By contrast, developing a deeper affection for the Republican Party increased voting among Republicans by only six points. Democrats didn't show the same effect. Increases in negative and positive partisanship drove voting at similar rates. But the data turned even starker when Pew moved up the ladder of political engagement. When Republicans were asked whether they contributed money to a candidate or group in the past few years, a very unfavorable view of Democrats raised the likelihood by 11 points, while a very favorable view of Republicans increased it by only 3. Among Democrats, a very unfavorable view of Republicans increased it by 8 points, while a very favorable view of their own party didn't increase it at all. All this points towards an important principle. The most engaged experience politics differently than everyone else. In the previous chapter, I mentioned the book Open versus Closed which found that the least engaged voters tend to look at politics through the lens of material self-interest. What will this policy do for me? Will the most engaged look at politics through the lens of identity? What does support for this policy position say about me? This helps illuminate a long-running debate, particularly on the left, about whether working-class voters who pull the lever for Republicans are betraying their self-interest in voting for a party that will cut taxes on the rich and break the unions and protect the poor. What Johnston, Levine, and Federico find is that as people become more involved and invested in politics, the self-interest they're looking to satisfy changes. It's a mistake to imagine our bank accounts are the only reasonable drivers of political action. As we become more political, we become more interested in politics as a means of self-expression and group identity. Quote, it is not that citizens are unable to recognize their interests. Rather, it is that material concerns are often irrelevant to the individual's goals when forming a policy opinion, end quote. Politicians, of course, are not equally responsive to all their constituents. They're most concerned about the most engaged, the people who will vote for them, volunteer for them, donate to them. And the way to make more of that kind of voter isn't just to focus on how great you are, it's to focus on how bad the other side is. Nothing brings a group together like a common enemy. Remove the fury and fear of a real opponent and watch the enthusiasm drain from your supporters. In 2017, Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke launched a long-shot Senate bid against Ted Cruz, one of the Democratic Party's most hated politicians. O'Rourke's candidacy was a sensation. He raised the most money ever recorded for a Senate race. He packed rafters, went viral. On election day, Beyonce posted a photo on Instagram wearing a Beto hat. O'Rourke lost by three points, but the groundswell of support convinced him to run for president. He entered the Democratic 2020 primary with great fanfare and big fundraising numbers, but he just plummeted in the polls. Strategic mistakes explain some of his struggles, but O'Rourke was the same candidate and the same man in 2019 as in 2018. The catalytic ingredient in his Senate campaign was liberal loathing of Cruz. The thrill that he might be defeated. When Orca's running against other Democrats, his personal charisma failed to recapture the magic of his Senate race. This is not to take away from the political power of inspiration. The most effective politicians thrill their supporters, but they do so in the context of the threat their opponents pose. And as politicians become less well known and capable on the stump, they rely more and more heavily on activating fear of the other side. This lesson is known by politicians the world over. You don't just need support, you need anger. That's why fundraising emails often border on the apocalyptic. A few of the recent subject lines in the emails I receive from the Republican National Committee in support of Trump's re-election campaign make the point. And note, these are all in all caps. One says, fake news! Exclamation point. Another, Americans must fight back! And my personal favorite just says FW like forward and then the word stolen? Question mark? It's why Trump is always fighting with the media. It's why presidential candidates find it hard to keep their supporters engaged when they win the White House. The terror of losing the election is more viscerally motivating than the compromises of daily governance. What all this suggests is that one of the most important questions in American politics is how strong our group identities are, how much we feel we belong to one team, and how much we fear losing to the other team what if it's not just one team we belong to? What if it's many teams? And what if all those teams begin working together? Identities politic. In 2004, Barack Obama gave that rarest of things, a speech that literally changed the course of American history. If John Kerry hadn't tapped Obama to keynote the Democratic National Convention, Obama wouldn't become a national political superstar while still an Illinois state senator. If he hadn't become a national political superstar, he wouldn't have run for president in his first term as U.S. senator. And if he hadn't run for president, well, you get the point. That speech wasn't just a neat bit of rhetoric. It was an argument about the structure of polarization. Even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, he said. The spin masters and negative ad peddlers who embrace the politics of anything goes. Notice the rhetorical move Obama makes. We are not divided. We can only be divided. The polarizers, they're out there. We're their victims. Our disagreement's their product. He goes on to deny their dark arts, to argue that the country is not what they make us think it is. There's not a liberal America and a conservative America. There's the United States of America. There's not a black America and white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America, he says. And as for the pundits who like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. That'd be me, I fear. Obama had news for them. He said, We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around our libraries in the red states. Of every politician I've covered, of every politician I've met, Obama is the most thoughtful and reflective, the best at seeing American politics with historical perspective and analytical altitude. His position on this was considered. He didn't just dislike polarization, he doubted it. And Why wouldn't he? If you're a skinny black kid with a middle name Hussein who shot from state senate to president of the United States in four years flat, wouldn't you? His life story was, itself, a rebuttal of polarization's coarse logic. This was the secret to his political success. He could speak to the best in America because he believed the best of America. He was like the friend who looked at you and saw the version of yourself you wanted to be. But the paradox of Obama's political career is that he himself was a polarizing figure. In 2015, I interviewed him at the White House. By that point, he was the most polarizing president in the history of polling, breaking the record George W. Bush had set before him that Bill Clinton had set before Bush. In case you're wondering, the crown now belongs to, yes, Donald Trump. I believe Obama had sincerely tried to pursue a politics that he thought would foster compromise or at least understanding. But he had failed. So I asked him, what advice would he give his successor about tamping down on polarization? It's a question that rings with dark irony today, given the way Trump pursues polarization as an explicit political strategy. Even so, I've struggled with Obama's answer in the years since. Obama said to me, quote, There are a couple of things that, in my mind at least, contribute to our politics being more polarized than people actually are. And I think most people just sense this in their daily lives. Everybody's got a family member or a really good friend from high school who's on the complete opposite side of the political spectrum. And yet we still love them, right? Everybody goes to a soccer game or watching their kids coaching, and they see parents who they think are wonderful people. And then if they made a comment about politics, suddenly they'd go, I can't believe you think that. Obama's point here is that our political identities are not our only identities. And our other identities, Little League coach, BTA member, parent, they're a lot less polarized than our political identities. Take me. I'm an American, Jewish, Caucasian, male Californian. My father is a Brazilian immigrant, so I care deeply about immigration, feel familial attachment to Brazil, and I find it relaxing to listen to English spoken in a Portuguese accent. I'm a husband, a father, a dog owner. can activate any of those identities by criticizing my wife or my son or praising cats. I lived in Washington, D.C. for 15 years, and I tend to get defensive when others criticize it. I'm a journalist who is critical of my profession, but protective of it when it's challenged. I'm a vegan, and because I think animal suffering is important and horribly ignored, I try to be at least somewhat strident about it. Then there are the parts of my personality that seem like preferences but can act like identities when challenged. I grew up using Apple computers, and I remember spending endless time arguing their superiority to PCs in ways that very much outstrip the importance of the question. I dislike Manhattan, and that dislike comes out particularly strongly when people praise Manhattan as superior to places I've lived and love, which people in Manhattan do all the damn time. I'm an anxious person, and that's become, over time, part of how I understand myself, not just something I feel. I mention these not because they're as powerful as, say, fatherhood is for me but because the line between what is and isn't an identity is fuzzier than we often think. If you don't believe me, spend some time watching television commercials and ask yourself whether they're advertising products or identities. All of these are identities that can be called forth in me on a moment's notice. Some of them are strong identities that I can imagine driving me to violence if sufficiently threatened. Some of them are weak identities I can imagine being persuaded to abandon. Some situate me in a certain political camp. Others cross all boundaries. But they're all in me simultaneously, and they interact in powerful and unpredictable ways. Obama argued that polarized media, gerrymandering, and the flood of political money tended to balkanize us into our political identities. He said, So my advice to a future president is increasingly try to bypass the traditional venues that create divisions— and try to find new venues within this new media that are quirkier, less predictable. Obama is offering the right explanation for polarization, but from the wrong angle. He's right that it's all about which identities get activated, and he's right that our political identities are more polarized than our other identities. But he's too optimistic in believing that our non-political identities could become our political identities, could supplant them. They are somehow a truer reflection of our essential selves, and thus strong enough to overwhelm our partisan divisions. In practice, our political identities are polarizing our other identities, too. In her book Uncivil Agreement, Liliana Mason sums up the state of American politics, and perhaps American life, in a single searing paragraph. The American political parties are going socially polarized. Religion and race, as well as class, geography, and culture, are dividing the parties in such a way that the effect of party identity is magnified. The competition is no longer between only Democrats and Republicans. A single vote can now indicate a person's partisan preference as well as his or her religion, race, ethnicity, gender, neighborhood, and favorite grocery store. This is no longer a single social identity. Partisanship can now be thought of as a mega-identity with all the psychological and behavioral magnifications that implies. Up until now, I've largely talked about the polarization of American politics in terms of objective, demographic, and ideological dimensions. The key point Mason is making, though, is that those traits also operate as identities, and in coming together, they fuse into a single sense of self. Living in a city, being a liberal, shopping at a Trader Joe's, dabbling in Zen meditation, they may not have much to do with one another in terms of public policy. But they reinforce a singular mega-identity, and that identity is political, or at least easily politicized. In 2004, the Club for Growth, a conservative interest group that advocates for lower taxes and deregulation, ran a famous ad against then-presidential candidate Howard Dean. In the ad, there's this older white couple, and they're stopped outside the shop with patriotic bunting. You can tell this is not like a big city area. And they're asked about Dean's plan to raise taxes. What do I think? The man replies. Well, I think Howard Dean should take his tax-hiking, government-expanding, latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, New York Times reading, and his wife cuts in. Body-piercing, Hollywood-loving, left-wing freak show back to Vermont where it belongs. And that, my friends, that is pure, uncut mega-identity politics. You could see in that riff the way political identity transcends mere partisanship. You may be a Democratic Socialist living in Berkeley, California who thinks Democrats are spineless corporatists, but you know that ad is an attack on you anyway. And once you begin looking for weaponization of seemingly non-political identity markers, you find it everywhere. I began this book trying to persuade you that something in American politics has changed, that though we still use the terms Democrat and Republican and liberal and conservative, our cleavages are different and deeper. This is what has changed. Our political identities have become political mega-identities, And the merging of the identities means when you activate one, you often activate all. And each time they're activated, they strengthen. Obama used the example of Americans together at a soccer game, but shifted a bit. What about Americans together at a football game? One of those nice depolarized identities, or at least it was. But then some of the football players, led by 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, began kneeling during the national anthem to protest police violence. Trump took up the case, tweeting that they should be fired. Democrats began defending them. Kaepernick was cut. Despite stats that should have gotten him a job on another team, no one would touch him. He later sued the NFL. In response, GQ made Kaepernick its citizen of the year. There's nothing intrinsically liberal about football. But after Kaepernick's protest became a national flashpoint, the NFL polarized. Before the controversy... About 60% of both Clinton and Trump voters viewed the NFL favorably. Amid the controversy, the NFL's favorability among Clinton voters was unchanged. But among Trump voters, it plummeted to 30%, and disapproval spiked to over 60%. Nike then made Kaepernick its new spokesman, even though he was no longer playing football professionally. In response, Trump supporters burned Nike gear, and Trump tweeted, Just like the NFL, whose ratings have gone way down, Nike's getting absolutely killed with anger and boycotts. Football fandom used to be an identity that cut across politics. Democrats like the sport. Republicans like the sport. Even I, sports hater that I am, played nose tackle in high school. I was heavier then. But when the NFL came into contact with politics, it became part of politics. Rather than a shared love of football, pulling our political identities toward compromise, our political identities polarized our love of football. Intense supporters are catnip for brands, so Nike jumped into the fray, purposefully polarizing one of the biggest clothing brands in the world. And football fandom became, at least for a while, one more magnet in the political identity stack, attracting those on the left and repelling those on the right. When we share identities with each other, they can act as a bridge. You're a 90s kid, and I'm a 90s kid. Let's talk about how the 90s were the best decade for music, which they were. But when our identities separate us from each other, they can be a moat, widening the distance between us. In 2002, psychologists Marilyn Brewer and Sonia Rakes showed that people with a lot of cross-cutting identities tended to be more tolerant of outsiders than people with highly aligned identities. The insight here makes sense. The more your identities converge on a single point, the more your identities can be threatened simultaneously. And that makes conflict much more threatening. Imagine two Democrats. One of them, Rick, is white, straight, and conservative. He attends an evangelical church, lives in a rural area, belongs to a union. The other, Sarah, is black, gay, and liberal. She's skeptical of religion, lives in Los Angeles, and identifies as a feminist. Rick, looking at the candidacy of George W. Bush, he would find some of his identities under threat. Bush is a Republican and hostile to unions, but other identities modulate his panic. Like him, Bush is an evangelical Christian, a white man, a conservative, respectful of rural culture. John Kerry, meanwhile, is a pro-union Democrat, but he's also a liberal urbanite who showed little understanding of rural America or the evangelical church. This is a kind of Democrat, Rick is, who would at least have considered voting for Bush. Sarah, by contrast, would look at Bush and see all her identities under threat simultaneously. He's a Republican, an evangelical white man, a conservative. He shows little respect for urban life, for atheists, and he backed a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. This is the kind of Democrat who would fear Bush, who would see him as a genuine danger to her life, who would do almost anything to see him defeated. This is the kind of Democrat who would volunteer for John Kerry's campaign, who would donate money, who would seek out harshly anti-Bush punitry and believe it easily. Thus, though it seems that a lot of different divisions would tear apart a society, it turns out that creating one bigger, deeper division, a mega-division, is more dangerous. Mason quotes a founder of American sociology, Edward Allsworth Ross, writing in The Principles of Sociology on this point, The chief oppositions which occur in society are between individuals, sexes, ages, races, nationalities, sections, classes, political parties, and religious sects. Several such may be in full swing at the same time. But the more numerous they are, the less menacing is any one. Every species of conflict interferes with every other species in society at the same time, save only when their lines of cleavage coincide, in which case they reinforce one another. A society, therefore, which is riven by a dozen oppositions along lines running in every direction, may actually be in less danger of being torn with violence or falling to pieces than one split along just one line. End quote. This isn't just theory. A 2012 study by Joshua Gubler and Joel Sawat Selway surveyed data from more than 100 countries and found that civil war is, quote, an average of nearly 12 times less probable in societies where ethnicity is cross-cut by socioeconomic class, geographic region, and religion, end quote. One way to read this data is just another way of describing pure policy disagreement. As our identities diverge, our worldview and agendas diverge. So all this is just a proportional response to deepening differences in self-interest. And there's certainly some of that. But as Toshville found long ago in a sports fans show every weekend, much of our hostility is a pure expression of how instinctively we treat outgroups. It doesn't need policy differences to catalyze it. Mason tested this directly. Using American National Election Studies survey data, she looked at what made people likely to rate the other party higher or lower on a feelings thermometer, went from 1 to 100, where 1 was the coldest you could feel and 100 the warmest. Cleverly, she cut the data to see self-identified Republicans whose policy views should have made them Democrats. They gave the Republican Party a rating of between 60 and 70, and the Democratic Party a rating between 30 and 50. As for Democrats with conservative policy positions, they rated the Democratic Party between 60 and 80 and gave the Republican Party between a 30 and 50. Interestingly, it turns out that there's only a weak relationship between how much a person identifies as a conservative or liberal and how conservative or liberal their views actually are. To be exact, in both cases, it's about a 0.25 correlation. One reason policy is not the driver of political disagreement is most people don't have very strong views about policy. It's the rare hobbyist who thinks often about cybersecurity and who should lead the Federal Reserve. But all of us are experts on our own identities. Over and again, Mason finds that identity is far more powerful than issue positions in driving polarization. All is equal, if you compare people with the most moderate policy positions with those with the most cross cutting identities, the policy moderates will be more than twice as unfriendly to the other party as those whose crossed identities are restraining their partisanship. That is to say, feeling closer to the other side in identity does more to calm dislike than being closer to the other side on policy. Mason writes, This is the American identity crisis. Not that we have partisan identities. We've always had those. The crisis emerges when partisan identities fall into alignment with other social identities, stoking our intolerance of each other to levels that are unsupported by our degrees of political disagreement. The stakes of politics, of course, are very real. Fights over tax dollars, whether to go to war, whether to recognize same-sex marriages, whether to pass a universal health care bill— but those are stakes that we have to do a lot of thinking and learning to connect to. They're stakes that exist in the more recently evolved parts of our brain, stakes we have to work to feel. Viscerally and emotionally, the stakes of politics we have evolved to sense is whether our group is winning or losing, whether the out-group is gaining the power to threaten us, or whether our allies are amassing the strength to ensure our safety and prosperity. As our many identities merge into single political mega-identities, those visceral emotional stakes are rising and with them our willingness to do anything to make sure our side wins. Political Identity is Fair Game for Hatred Shanto Yenger is director of Stanford University's Political Communications Laboratory, and he noticed something odd. In 1960, Americans were asked whether they would be pleased, displeased, or unmoved if their son or daughter married a member of the other political party. Respondents reacted with a shrug. Only 5% of Republicans and 4% of Democrats said they'd be upset by the cross-party union. On the list of things you might care about in a child's partner, are they kind, smart, successful, supportive? Which political party they voted for just didn't rate. Fast forward to 2008. The polling firm YouGov asked Republicans and Democrats the same question and got very different results. This time, 27% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats said they would be upset if a son or daughter married a member of the opposite party. In 2010, you got to asked the question again. This time, 49% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats professed concern at interparty marriage. The number suggested to Iyengar that today's political differences were somehow different than yesterday's. The nature of American political partisanship, he worried, was mutating into something more fundamental, less bridgeable, than what it had been in the past. If he was right, then party affiliation wasn't simply an expression of our disagreements, it was also becoming the cause of them. If Democrats thought of other Democrats as their group and of Republicans as a hostile outgroup, and vice versa, then the consequences would stretch far beyond politics and into things like, say, marriage. And the data was everywhere. Polls looking at the difference between how Republicans view Democrats and how Democrats viewed Republicans. Now, should sure the partisans were less accepting of each other than white people were of black people or than black people were of white people. But there is no way partisanship, an identity we choose and sometimes change, could possibly have become a cleavage in American life as deep as race, right? It seems crazy. So, Yanger decided to test it. The experiment was simple. Working with Dartmouth College political scientist Sean Westwood, Inger asked about 1,000 people to decide between the resumes of two high school seniors who were competing for a scholarship. The resumes could differ in three ways. First, the senior could have either a 3.5 or 4.0 GPA. Second, the senior could have been the president of the Young Democrats or Young Republicans Club. And third, the senior could have a stereotypically African-American name and have been president of the African-American Student Association or could have a stereotypically Caucasian name. The point of the project was to see whether political hostility affected a non-political task and to compare the effect with race. I've read a lot of studies in the course of researching this book, but this one still surprises me. When the resume included a political identity cue, about 80% of Democrats and Republicans awarded the scholarship to their co-partisan. This held true whether or not the co-partisan had the higher GPA. When the Republican student was more qualified, Democrats chose him only 30% of the time, and when the Democrat was more qualified, Republicans chose him only 15% of the time. That's a profound finding. When awarding a college scholarship, a task that should be completely non-political, Republicans and Democrats cared more about the political party of the student than the student's GPA. As younger and Westwood wrote, partisanship simply trumped academic excellence. Remarkably, in this study, partisanship even trumped race when the candidates were equally qualified. About 78% of African Americans chose a candidate of the same race as it did 42% of white Americans. When the candidate of the other race had a higher GPA, 45% of African Americans chose him as it did 71% of white Americans. Younger's theory was that partisan animosity is one of the few forms of discrimination the contemporary American society not only permits but actively encourages. He told me, political identity is fair game for hatred. Racial identity is not. Gender identity is not. You cannot express negative sentiments about social groups in this day and age. But political identities are not protected by these constraints. A Republican is someone who chooses to be a Republican so I can say whatever I want about them. End quote. You can see an example when you look at the media, Westwood observes. There are no major cable channels devoted to making people of other races look bad. Although, I'd say Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham get pretty close sometimes. But there are cable channels that are devoted to making members of the other party look bad. He says, The media has become tribal leaders. They're telling the tribe how to identify and behave, and we're following along. End quote. Now, Westwood is quick to note that the comparison to racism doesn't mean partisanship is somehow worse than racism, more pervasive or more damaging. It's easier to see and thus discriminate against people based on their skin color than their partisanship, for instance, and political beliefs are a choice with moral implications while race is not. Judging someone on whether they support gay marriage, universal health care, or gun laws is very different than judging them on the color of their skin. Still, Yanger and Westwood's research is a fundamental challenge to the way we like to believe American politics works. A world where we won't give an out-party high schooler with a better GPA a non-political scholarship is not a world in which we're going to listen to politicians on the other side of emotional, controversial issues, even if they're making good arguments that are backed by the facts. Ienger and Westwood's research is confirmation of the way Tajville thought people worked. Here, again, we have people in a room, sorted by identities with no relationship to the task at hand, and using what power they have to reward the in-group and punish the out-group. Yanger says, quote, The old theory was political parties came into existence to represent deep social cleavages. But now party politics has taken on a life of its own. Now it is the cleavage. End quote. A life of its own. Now it is the cleavage. It reminds me of something else Tajfeld wrote way back in 1970. Social scientists created a distinction between rational and irrational forms of group conflict. As Toshvold described it, the former is a means to an end. The conflict and the attitudes that go with it reflect a genuine competition between groups of divergent interests. The latter is an end in itself. It serves to release accumulated emotional tensions of various kinds. But Toshvold went on to say the distinction between the two kinds of hostility was less clear than his profession thought because they reinforce each other in a relentless spiral. This is, I think, the best way to understand the relationship between policy differences and identity conflict. They're mutually reinforcing, not opposed or separate. Take immigration. Hispanics have become a more powerful and central part of the Democratic coalition. It's probably why Obama made the decision to protect law-abiding dreamers from deportation. That decision, which angered many Republicans, is part of what opened space for Trump to run an insurgent primary campaign heavy on anti-immigrant pro-white rhetoric. In office, Trump has pushed a raft of anti immigrant policies, including canceling Obama's protections for Dreamers, which has both offended Democrats on a moral level and pushed Hispanics yet more into the Democratic column, making them more powerful in the Democratic Party. As a result, Democrats have increasingly united behind both pro immigrant policies and pro immigrant values, to the extent that most of the 2020 presidential candidates endorse decriminalizing unauthorized border crossing, giving undocumented immigrants access to public health insurance. Both of these were unthinkable policies of the Democratic Party even a few years earlier. Behind the endorsement of these ideas is the Democrats' changing identity as a party that believes in diversity and welcomes immigrants, both documented and undocumented, as woven into the American narrative. In 2019, I interviewed Julian Castro, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, who was then running for president. He told me, quote, I see undocumented immigrants as being part of the American story for generations, including this generation. I see them as integral to building a strong future for the country. I always talk about the fact that in many ways, we need undocumented immigrants, whether we want to admit it or not. end quote. What might have started as a limited question of immigration policy has become central to the conflict between the two parties on an identity level, too. It's not just about what the coalitions want to do. It's about who they are, what they believe, and who counts as their we. But identity doesn't just shape how we treat each other. It shapes how we understand the world. That is the excerpt. Thank you for listening. And thank you very much for being with me and tuning in on uh, this whole project. The book did not spring out of air. It sprung out of the conversations here and the work we've been doing here. And I've got in so many great emails and pointers to, to knowledge I didn't have before, books I hadn't read, papers I didn't know about. Uh, in many ways this book was co-created with this audience and so i'm grateful to all of you you can pre-order or order depending on when you're listening why we're polarized uh an audiobook at audible.com or wherever you get your audiobooks in book form wherever you get your books my email as always is ezra kleinshow at vox.com thank you to simon and schuster for letting us put this here thank you to jeffrey geld for producing the ezra klein show as a vox media podcast production